Welcome to RiskWise, a show about money for Muslims, where you'll learn how to make smarter financial decisions without selling your soul. For the full experience, join us at no cost at RiskWise.com. Assalamu alaikum, Risk Nation. Welcome back to the show. I am your host, Ahmed Manoor, joined by my co-host, Defender oh, of Common Sense. <laughs> Assalamu alaikum. This is Saeed. Great to be here. Thank you for joining us again. I've gotten no feedback on that name, by the way. Yeah. Um, I think that's maybe um, people are trying to be polite and not tell you how bad it is. That, that's what I think. That's my interpretation. Or, or they love it and it, it, it requires no comment because it's just so amazing. <laughs> sure, let's go with that. I mean, you're going to go with that anyway, so yeah. I'll just agree well, to it. Well, I've already gone with that, clearly. Yes. So welcome back to the show, everyone. Thank you so much for listening again. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had hinted in the last episode that we were going to have a bit of a fight. Yeah, man. And, and this is, you know, admittedly, you know, full disclosure, this is a bit of an orchestrated fight. <laughs> not, yeah, it's not, absolutely. It's not a real fight. but And it's not a fight that we have been having alone. Um, it's a fight that that has been waging for how long, say? How long has this been debate been going on for? Um, I think the origins of this debate are about 40 years old. So it's at least a 40-year-old debate. And the, the, the debate is the whether an active or passive approach to investing is ultimately going to yield the best returns in the long term. Mm-hmm. So Saeed and I we're we're gonna take each gonna take a side in this debate. I'm gonna I'm gonna be the passive guy, he's gonna be the active guy. That doesn't necessarily reflect our own personal beliefs. Uh, and we do want to make clear here that we we're gonna present we're gonna present the arguments on both sides to you. Um, we're not going to, in the end, conclude which approach is better because that would constitute investment advice, and that's not our goal here. Our goal is to give you the information and the tools that you need to make the right decisions. And hopefully, mm-hmm. after this episode, you'll have a good crash course, at least, on the arguments on both sides. And I think we'll probably point you to some resources to to study more on the topic if you're so inclined. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, yes, to reiterate, this is not advice that we're trying to give, investment advice that you should do one or the other. I'm going to advocate strongly in favor of active management, and Ahmed is going to do the same with passive investing. And uh, you judge for yourself what makes more sense to you. All right. So, why don't you get us started? Okay. So, investing is pretty simple. Really, what you're doing is when you invest in the stock market, which is kind of a strange term for what it is, but what you're doing is you're going to go out there, you're going to take your money, and you're going to look for some good businesses that are invested, that are doing really well for themselves, that are growing their earnings, that are making money. Uh, they have good product, good services. They're making hand over fist. They're, they're growing their business. And this is a company that because it's growing, you want to be a part of. That requires work. It's not something that can be done easily. It's not something that can be done, you know, just with some feelings or, you know, what your gut tells you. It requires work. You've got to know what the business is that you're putting your money into. I mean, you wouldn't do it any other way. If you're going to go buy a franchise of some uh, restaurant, fast food chain, you wouldn't just willy nilly, you know, buy, you know, whatever fast food chain on whatever corner. 
you would do your research. You would know, find out what the demographic is. You would find out where you should be putting this place. You should, you would even find out, you know, traffic lights and the driveway into your restaurant and how easy it is for people to park. Those are the details that you would get into anytime you invested into a physical business. So when it comes to buying a publicly traded business, a business that is so large that shares are out, out there in the world for you to buy and sell, you got to do your homework. I mean, that's the only way to invest that makes sense. So you got to take an active approach. You've got to be actively engaged in knowing what the business business is that you're investing in. You have to be actively engaged in finding good companies to buy. And you've got to be actively engaged in knowing when to get out of sinking ships. It's the only way to do it. Yeah. Okay. I, I agree with you, actually. And oh. that's why... Debate over. Thank you very much, Destination, <laughs> for joining us uh, once again. Never we'll tell you your week. opponent in a debate that you agree. Um, no, I actually agree with the logic and the rationale for that approach. And I think that's why it's so dangerous. Mm-hmm. It's because it sounds very, uh, very appealing, logically and rationally. The problem is that the data doesn't support it. So if you look at the data... If you look at the investment managers that actively try to pick stocks, that actively try to find the winners and ditch the losers, what we see is that they're all really, really bad at it. That the vast majority of professional stock pickers, forget forget you, the listener, forget the amateur, forget me, right? We're amateurs. We have day jobs. We don't, we don't pour over annual reports uh, you know, all morning and all afternoon, at least I hope, <laughs> unless that's your job, right? We don't do that. But there are people who do do that. They pour over the reports and they attend the earnings calls and they, they um, you know, they, they do all this research. And if you look at the volume of, of, of research that's produced in the financial services industry on these companies that are traded on the stock exchange, it's, it's insane. It's an insane amount of information. And the people that are creating it, and consuming it, the majority of them still don't have a better chance of outperforming the index. And we talked about indexes and benchmarks in the last episode, right? An index or a benchmark is essentially an aggregation of the value of all the stock, the stocks or the companies in a particular um, uh, index or or stock exchange. And all these guys who, who have all this research and all this data at their fingertips and they pour over it and they study it, even they don't have a better chance of beating the index than anyone else. So my question to you is, what makes you think you can beat the market? Can I answer that theoretically? Well, I want you to answer it practically. Okay. The market, you know... It's, as you said, it's an aggregate of all of the businesses in a given whatever way you want to bisect the market. You want to say all the businesses in the U.S., you want to say all the large businesses in the U.S., all the businesses in Australia, all the resource companies in Australia, however you want to, you know, create your little dissections. You can dissect any market and create little indexes to measure aggregate, you know, aggregate cumulative performance up or down. So we, we can create indexes for whatever. But the argument that, you know, somehow the the market is going to have the correct price for every every single company every second of the day and that there's no way 
for a human being to get in there and say, yeah, I think the market is wrong about this. I think that they've sold this way too quickly, um, but there's a whole lot of fear. I mean, think about it. Everybody knows people who have invested, or if you've invested money yourself, you know that there's a lot of emotion involved in it. That there's a lot of fear of loss, that when stuff goes down, people get get scared. I deal with those questions every day, where clients are afraid of a loss. They saw it, they open their statement, and it says, you know, this month, the stuff went down by whatever. And then they get scared. And then for people who don't have good advisors, who people who don't think of the market in the long term, people who don't really have discipline, they will look at something going down and they'll sell it. And they'll say, yeah, I, I can't handle it. I can't take it. Uh, I'm, I'm going to lose everything if I stick here. I mean, why why stay with a stink, sinking ship? Uh, this makes no sense. When in many cases, it does make sense to ride it through. So people will sell out of fear. People will also buy into stuff that has gone so high in price, it makes no sense whatsoever at all. And people will go ahead and buy it because everybody else is. It's got to make sense. Maybe I'm missing something. People are basically sheep. We follow the herd. So an individual who is smart, emotionally disciplined, and has a very well-honed investment philosophy can get in there and say, hey, look, the world is crazy. Like back in 2011, you know, the Italian president, we mentioned this before, Berlusconi was uh, caught in some ridiculous sex scandal back in the end of 2011, and the markets fell like through the floor. It was crazy what happened the day that he that this sex scandal was announced. And, you know, markets all around the world went down because, oh, man, here goes a quote-unquote world leader caught in some ridiculous scandal in Europe that was going through a crisis at the time. You know, it, it, this is never going to be solved. This is going to be terrible for everybody everywhere. And no offense to Italians, but why should anybody who owns, I don't know, Apple stock or GM stock, why should they care about what happens to the Italian prime minister? It doesn't make any sense. So on days like that, it's very easy for somebody who has emotional discipline to look at the market and say, yeah, everybody's being dumb right now. The market is completely dumb and inefficient, and we can exploit that for a good result. Yeah, and the the active um, fund manager or the active uh, investing proponents tend to really come out hard in a bear market, right? Because this this is really, I, I know why you went there, right? This is the argument for active investing. Yep. So when everything's good and, and stocks are going up and the markets are going up, then ride the wave, be a passive investor, you know, buy the index and you'll be good, right? No one's complaining at that point. But when things are going down, and when there's a bear market and and there's trouble and, you know, Berlusconi's up to no good and, you know, Volkswagen's doing all kinds of stuff and whatever, <laughs> right? Then that's when the active proponents come out and say, well, look, if you just stick with the index, if you remain passive, then you're losing value. Yeah. You're losing value. And the index is, you know, ultimately an algorithm, right? <laughs> it's, it's, you know, you're not involved in any of the decision making. No human being is involved in decision making. So you need a human being to, to, to be there in those moments to ditch the losers, ditch the, the, the companies that are going through scandals or navigate turbulent markets when, uh, when companies are being uh, unfairly punished by outside market forces. The problem is that there's a cost to that. Right. Even if that's true, if I accept that premise that in a bear market, when things are going down, that it is advantageous to have somebody actively managing 
your, your portfolio if I accept that premise. I'm not saying I do. But if I do, then we have to acknowledge that there's a cost to that, right? And there's two significant costs in particular. One is that these guys managing money, they're not doing it for free. You know these guys on Wall Street that we complain about how they're like they have these massive bonuses and these huge compensation packages and like and they're essentially, you know, bankrupting the middle class. <laughs> yeah, guess how they get paid? <laughs> they get paid by actively managing money. Right? And management fees for for an active fund are, you know, 1%, 2%, 2%'s high. I think most most of them have come down now, but you know, somewhere between 1 and 2% every single year. So you're paying these guys 1% to 2% of your portfolio every single year, whether it's a good market, whether it's a bad market. So if you see the value in having somebody you know, navigate, navigate turbulent markets and bear markets, then that's, that's, that's fine, but they're not doing it for free. You're paying them a big chunk of your portfolio. 1% to 2% may sound like nothing, but think about that over 20, 30 years. Run the numbers. It's a lot of money, tens of thousands of dollars, depending on how big your portfolio is. That's one. Second is taxes. Every time you sell an investment, every time you sell an investment, you're paying the government. Right? Because when you sell an investment, assuming you make money, it's, there's a capital gain. If you, if you buy a stock for $20 and you sell it for $40, you made $20 and you have to pay a capital gains tax on that money. So it's not free, right? So the, 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 the arguments for, for passive investing are that, first of all, low fees. Index funds, which is kind of the darling of the passive investment community, they, the, the fees are like a fraction of a percent, like a tenth of a percent, right? It's, it's minuscule. Right. So low fees compounded over the course of 20, 30, 40 years adds up to a massive difference and fewer tax consequences. If you're not jumping in and out of stocks, buying and selling, triggering capital gains, you're paying less taxes. So, again, back to the data. Not only is there very little data to support the fact that any active manager can beat the market consistently over time, when you factor in things like taxes and things like fees it's almost impossible no it's not it's not impossible it's almost impossible and the trouble is that because it's it is technically possible people think that they can do it but very few actually have interesting um how much time do we have can i go back one more time or are we uh, gonna cut it here go for it so you know the, the the taxes and fees argument are definitely uh, I mean they they are they're part of the reality um, of doing business and being an investor that there will be costs and there will be taxes if you do well I mean if you have to pay taxes it means you've made money um, if you're not paying taxes maybe you haven't made money I don't know but when you buy a passively managed index fund you are subject to the whims of whatever is happening in the market there's no buffer there's no um, intelligent 
uh, person, team, analysts that's protecting you from some of the major catastrophes, even if they're very obvious and slow moving and coming right at you. Like, you know, Ahmed mentioned VW. They're, the emission scandal is a game changing, business breaking scandal. It is not a small thing. It's not like the CEO, you know, had some, you know, cocaine filled drug party and people are, you know, just getting all up in arms about that. That doesn't necessarily affect the business. But this is an actual scandal where the business lied purposefully and they did everything they could to hide the fact that they were lying. They installed software in their cars to cheat emission standards and environmental standards. I mean, I think, you know, rational people would say human beings, especially young people who, who tend to uh, demographically care more about the environment than others, we couldn't be invested in something like that. And if you're part of a European index, Volkswagen is going to be a big part of what you own. So not only is it, you know, bad for your wallet to be in a passive index fund where you're owning everything in the benchmark because these big, really like massive business blunders, if you don't own that stock, if you sold VW, if you never were invested in VW in the first place, then none of that affects you. But if you own an index, yeah, it will. And the larger the company, the larger the weight it has in the index. So right now, I believe Apple is around 7-8% uh, of the total S&P 500, meaning that if you bought the S&P 500 index, about 7-8% or 8 of your holdings, may, maybe more actually now, um, is just one company. Now, Apple's doing incredibly well right now, but if it pulled the BlackBerry and fell from grace and, you know, did it terribly over the course of five, six, seven, ten years. I well, well, that won't happen because they make actually decent phones and products. <laughs> oh, so we can start another debate right now. Um, <laughs> but if, uh, okay, I'm totally distracted now. No, if Apple does go through a, a massive debacle like that, then anybody holding an index fund, you can have uh, 400 companies that are doing incredibly well. But because Apple is so big and such a big part of that index, you will ultimately do terribly, even though 400 companies are doing better. It's just Apple is so big. There are many examples of that. I mean, in Canada, we had this company called Nortel, a telephone communications company that actually committed fraud, that lied about its earnings, like straight up, like a Volkswagen kind of deal, cheated, lied to you know, fake earnings and fake losses and fake expenses. It was a, you know, they went down and their, their accounting firm that audited them went down with it. It was a big scandal. And at that time, I mean, they were more than 10% of the market. So if you were in an index fund at that point in time, yeah, you would have lost terribly, even if you could have seen Nortel's demise, they committed fraud and they're going to go bankrupt in the course of time. You couldn't sell it. If you owned an index, dot com bubble is another example. If you were one of those people who back in the late 90s, early 2000s, saw that all these businesses trading on the market that were dot com this, dot com that, even though they had no business, they had no revenue, they were just a URL that was catchy and a cool website, and they became a publicly traded company for millions of dollars, and you just decided, that's dumb, I'm not going to do that, and you chose to bow out of that whole segment of the market. If you were an index fund, you couldn't do that. You would have suffered the consequences of these dot-com bubbles. And frankly, why are we even talking about indexes in the first place when it comes to your investing? If you are smart, if you are diligent, if you're emotionally controlled, you should be beating to your own drum 
and you should be looking at your own performance and what you want to accomplish long term. It ain't about the index. It's about is your money making the money that you need to achieve your big rocks. I would drop my mic if it wasn't so expensive, but... Yeah, well, I mean, the, the whole problem with your argument is that those three things you just said, if you're smart, diligent, and emotionally controlled. And you're saying that people aren't? You're saying that our amazing listeners are not those three things? How dare you? How dare you, sir? I'm saying I don't know anyone like that, <laughs> not just our <laughs> listeners, that when it comes to money, you cannot divorce emotion from the equation. It is very emotional because there is an inherent desire to beat the market. We like to win at everything. What do you mean mm-hmm. we can't win? Of course we can win. Of course, you know, I put, if I put my mind to it, I can do anything or some ridiculous mantra like that, right? People think that they can win at anything if they just, you know, follow the right approach or hire the right person or pick the right stock. But again, data. What does the data show? Charlie Ellis as the founder of Greenwich Associates, he's been in the investment business for over 50 years. And he's done a lot of research on active versus passive investing. And what he says is that over the course of a 12-month period, more than half of active fund managers fall short of the targets they set for themselves, which is the index. Okay, and If you extend that period to you know uh, o- over a year, it gets even worse. If you extend it out to over 10, 20 years, the failure rate or the falling short rate goes up to 80%. So there's no evidence to suggest that in the short term or the long term that any active manager can consistently outperform the market. And I'm going to make just one more closing statement if that's okay. Fine. So Jack Meyer is the gentleman who... Uh, who tripled the Harvard Endowment Fund from $8 billion to $27 billion. Mm. And here's what he had to say about the experience. He says, the investment business is a giant scam. Most people think they can find managers who can outperform, but most people are wrong. I will say that 85 to 90% of managers fail to match their benchmarks. Because managers have fees and incur transaction costs, you know that in the aggregate, they are deleting value. When asked if private investors can draw any lessons from what Harvard does, Mr. Meyer responded, yes, first get diversified. Come up with a portfolio that covers a lot of asset classes. Second, you want to keep your fees low. That means avoiding the most hyped but expensive funds in favor of low-cost index funds. And finally, invest for the long term. Investors should simply have index funds to keep their fees low and their taxes down. No doubt about it. So, if tripling your portfolio from $8 billion to $27 billion sounds appealing to you, I would take this guy's advice. How long did that take? It's a good question. Oh, okay. That's eh, one dude. Whatever. <laughs> you know who else is one dude? You. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and there's, there, I mean, and, and there's 10,000. I mean, the, the idea that most active managers underperform the benchmark, I mean, yeah. For sure. I mean, the, what's the benchmark? The benchmark is the average of all the buys and sells for the day and what that added up to at the end. It's the average. So there's half people, like 50% of the people did better, 50% of the people did worse. 
of course, there's going to be managers out there who are terrible, and we can identify who those people are, and you avoid them. Most of them will fall in the category of not being great. So you get rid of the bottom 70% pretty easily, and you got a pretty good shot. Mm, well, no. You, you've got a shot at finding somebody who has uh, who's been able to beat the market for a year, maybe. But when you extend that out over years... The problem is that the guys that beat the market today, they're probably not beating the market tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing, right? It's not it, when someone does beat the market, chances are it's it's likely just a coincidence. They happen to pick the right stocks that outperformed. But very few managers, well, less than 20% over the course of 20 years have proven that they can consistently beat the market. Yeah, you'll find people that, that, that can do it in the short term. I mean, they have there have to be some, right? Like you said, there's got to be some. It can't be impossible. If the index is the average, then there's got to be some people who are outperforming. Yeah, there has wants, to be. Who wants the average, man? I'm but, above average. But, Our listeners are above average. But there's less than 20% at most. <laughs> at most, right? Some people will say as much as 90% of, of active managers can't beat the market in the long term. But at most, 20% of them have had some success in the long term mm-hmm. at most. Um, I'm well, good luck finding them, first of all. <laughs> good good debate, man. Yeah, I mean, this is something that has been raging uh, very heavily for the last 10 years, the, the active versus passive debate. Um, on the internet, you will see tons and tons of stuff out there about indexing, about mutual funds, about active managers. Um, and it's a great read for anybody who's not been in the investment world for very long, for anybody especially who is managing their own stock portfolio. If you have a day job doing something else, like an engineer, accountant, doctor, lawyer, whatever, uh, if you have a day job doing something other than analyzing businesses and you're picking stocks for your own portfolio, you might want to take a look at some of that discussion. Um, yeah, and I think we should link to a number of resources, Said Among them, uh, John Bogle's book. Uh, what's it called? The little book, the little book of common sense investing. Common sense investing. That's uh, John Bogle. So John Bogle's the, the the guy who wrote the thesis on this back in the seventies um, on active managers and performance of active managers compared to benchmarks and indexes. Um, that's a, a very good book to read. Um, how many books do we want to recommend? Do we want to recommend books or articles? Should we link up some articles? Well, let's, let's do both. But I do think we should just make one kind of qualifying remark here. Mm-hmm. And that's that. And this is good advice in general, is always consider the source right. of your information, right? What you'll find is that on both sides of the debate, but I'm going to pick on the active side for a minute. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the people that, that are advocating for an active approach to investing have a vested interest in, selling you. in selling you active funds. Absolutely. Right? Um, so it's not, that, it's, not that they're, it's not that what they're saying is untrue, um, but consider the source that so there's a clear bias there and you have to, you know, you have to keep that in mind when you're, when you're um, weighing the, the pros and cons. Yeah, and in the research, I mean, everybody does research. You can talk to any advisor, any portfolio manager, any money manager, and they will show you quote-unquote research. Um, There's research and then there's meta-research. So there's research that says, you know, um, this is my research that shows uh, company A is a great company to buy. 
that's research. Look, I'm providing you with data. I'm providing you with research. That's what you want. That's what's good. I'm providing you with the data. I'm providing you with the research that shows that my decision for us to invest into a company A is a good decision. And that's just, you know, your research. But then there's meta research. Then that is the research on the effectiveness of that research. So when you aggregate the performance of these people who are um, actively managing investments, as a whole community of portfolio managers, how are they performing? What's the persistence record of them outperforming? So let's say you can find people who are doing better than the market today, and they've done it for the last three years. What's the likelihood of them being continuing to outperform three years from now, right? Just because they outperformed in the past doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to outperform in the future. So that kind of meta research um, is uh, really um, impacting the industry, I think, in a very positive way, giving good information, holding people to account, holding portfolio managers and money managers, putting their feet to the fire and saying, hey, um, here's a benchmark. And today I can go buy that benchmark. So it's not just a theoretical game of you beating some theoretical framework. It's I can go get that. So why should I hire you instead of going to get that? And there's a very, very healthy debate happening right now uh, on both sides. Um, and again, I'm not going to uh, show my hand as to which side I favor at all because um, I can't do that on air. So, you know, definitely take uh, take a look at um, these resources that we'll be linking to in the just, show notes. Just send me an email. I'll tell you what side he's on. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, so I think that pretty much wraps up our our series on investing, doesn't it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we could shoehorn one more in, but then it becomes like 50% investing, and I don't think our listeners are, are really needing the investing stuff yet. I think it's more money management and day-to-day finances first. Yeah, and we're going to we're going to get back into that now. So what what, what we did in in the first uh the first, you know, 10 or 15 episodes is we tried to cover the, you know, all the foundational topics as a, uh, you know, from start to finish. And now that we're nearing the end of that, um, you're going to see things start to change a little bit around here. And I won't spoil it, but um, it's going to get, I think, very interesting, inshallah. Mm -hmm. I think so. Looking forward to it, man. All right. Me too. Inshallah. Saeed, we'll talk soon. And Risk Nation, thanks again for listening. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum.